0: 6 We're going to have communion after the message this morning. And so we shorten worship a little bit. But we want to look at Genesis 6 this morning as we keep making our way through um, this book of Genesis. And of course, as we get to Genesis 6, we begin the account of the flood. Noah and the ark and the flood. It reminds me of um, years ago um, when I was living in Montana. Uh, Wink and I uh, lived in about the center of the state in Great Falls and we used to uh, take the kids of the church um, out into this ghost town east of uh, Great Falls and it was just a awesome place and uh, it had a great creek running through it and this ravine surrounded by mountains and we could dam up the creek before the, that was in the days before the EPA would complain and uh, there were rocks that were you know, kind of mossy and slimy and so we could slide down them and just have a great day but I remember this one day we went there that Wink's brothers and some other of the boys decided they'd climb up the side of one of these mountains and so they made their way up and they went up so high that you first of all had to stare to even find them and then when you did find them you'd just see these little dots of color amidst this kind of grayish brown background And it was not only amazing that they had gone up that far, but never forget when they came down, and Wink's brother in Eugene, Oregon, still has one of them, they came down with these rocks about this big that were literally full of seashells. Matter of fact, the rocks have more seashells in them than rock, if you will. It's not like there's a shell here or there. They're almost all seashell, and yet they were rocks. And, of course, that's amazing because it's... Montana (laughs) and we know that up in the mountains of Montana the oceans are a long ways away but of course it speaks to what happened to this earth at one time as God caused a flood to become to come upon the earth I was thinking as we get into this that there are those that push aside the account of the earth being flooded it's just like they think it's a ridiculous fable in the Bible like they do with so many things So some people could take the book of Genesis and believe that there's a God and even believe the creation account. But when it comes to the flood, they have a problem with it. And yet, I want you to know as believers that you do stand on solid ground by holding to the fact that the Bible talks about it and you believe it. What I mentioned to you about finding those rocks is evidence that our geological record uh, points to a flood that in this earth at one time there was mass devastation that took place and it brought a change in the universe Um, I think of other things uh, that point to documenting the flood Jesus himself spoke of the flood in Matthew 24 when he said the coming of the son of man will be just like what in the days of Noah when in the days of Noah the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and so, again, some may say, well, that's using the Bible to support the Bible. And yet we have to admit that the Genesis account is thousands of years before what Jesus said there. And again, you have documentation from other manuscripts, different manuscripts, basically documenting the same thing. The prophets, again, another account. Those of you that went to see the Dead Sea Scrolls saw the book of Isaiah there or portions of it. And it was Isaiah the prophet that said in Isaiah 54, for this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. And so I've sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. And so again, we have one more source. Then we can go to the apostles. We think of the apostle Peter, what he said in 1 Peter 3.20, who once were disobedient with the patience of God, kept waiting waiting in the days of Noah. And then often it has been discovered that in ancient civilizations... They have found documentation that these ancient civilizations very often have some type of flood uh, tradition within their records. And so starting in Genesis 6, we, we come to this very thing, the, the flood of the earth, when God wiped out mankind um, underwater. And God brought it about because the wickedness of mankind had reached such a height that God could no longer just stand back and let it continue. And so it says in verse one, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And so um, we see that the earth is multiplying, and of course we know the account tells us that the wickedness of man was increasing. Verse five, that that was all man was about was wickedness. And so God then brought, and we wonder that you know how bad was it. And we know it is because of what we're going to see uh, that verses one through four are talking about. As we go from chapter five into chapter six, and you need to understand, like verse one has said, there has been uh, the earth has multiplied. Really, you go from the middle of verse chapter three into verse uh, chapter six. I'm sorry, and you have 1,600 years that have passed. So you and I can read these accounts in just a matter of minutes, but we forget they're dealing with hundreds of years and in that time frame like it said in verse 1 man had multiplied and if you think that man had the ability to live into his hundreds and that meant he had the ability to keep multiplying up into those old ages what we consider old age you realize then some project that literally there were millions of people upon the face of the earth when the time of the flood uh, came and so verse 5 tells us that and it doesn't necessarily say that man was wicked in verse 5 but just that I mean verse 1, but just that man was multiplying. And so then, as we come to verse 2, we understand what it is saying, that there's little doubt that this is a case that wickedness did reach a crescendo because it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they choose. And so, um, we see that wickedness started to increase. Now, some of you are going to hear these verses for the first time. Some of you have studied this part of Genesis before. But it's interesting that we know that if what we're going, to, what I'm going to show you happened here didn't happen, that wickedness would have increased anyway. Probably not to this degree. We know man has fallen. That it, sin entered the world through Adam. And so that alone would show us that man was going to get corrupt and wickedness was going to grow. But then... Uh, you bring this other element that led to an ever increasing wickedness and it was when what we call in verse 2 there the sons of God uh, intermingled and married with the daughters of men and you see the same thing those names mentioned again in verse 4 and so the question is then is who are these sons of God and what is this really talking about here if we think of the New Testament the sons of God in the New Testament are you and I, born-again believers. And so we're referred to the sons of God. But you've got to make sure that when you think of that's what we are, that in this case, that is not what's being talking about because they are not those of God at all. And, uh, in a, and really what you'll see is they're angels. The, this word is used three more times in the book of Job. And there it is always it's referring to angels. And then there's a Hebrew word in Daniel that's very similar that refers to an angel or a theophany, which is an Old Testament's appearance of Christ. And then twice in two different Psalms where another similar word is used. And so it would seem that we're on good grounds to say that the sons of God here in verse 2 that caused this evil to increase upon the face of the earth were angels. Um, And so that's the first thing I want you to understand. And not everybody, though, agrees with that, okay? Um, Some say that saying an angel of God could, and this is what it seems to be saying here, could have relationships then with people of the earth, daughters of the earth, that would be women of the earth, that that is a real problem. And so rather than saying that the sons of God are angels, they say that the sons of God are those that are in the line of Seth, Remember, we talked about this, that Seth's line tended to be a godly line. That was Abel and stuff. And Cain's line tended to be the ungodly line. And so they see that in the Seth's line came the godly, in Cain's the ungodly. And what you have here then is an a intermixing, if you will, interbreeding of the two. And thus, uh, what you see comes forth came forth. And again you know they could say that but there's some real problems with that number one the word sons of God in the Old Testament here doesn't refer to men but angels and so if you're going to hold to that argument you're going to have to answer that question number two there is no evidence anywhere that there were two distinct groups that existed and one of them was called the sons of God and the other was called the sons of angel and then third to assume that all Seth's line was godly would be a wrong assumption wouldn't it just as to assume all Cain's line that there was not one in the line of Cain that sought after God would be wrong as well. And so some of his cess offspring more than likely were ungodly as well. And again, you get into a mistake when you all of a sudden think that a group of people or a certain race is going to be more godly than the others. And we know that's not the case, is it? It has nothing to do with our race or our nationality or anything like that. Our walk with God and how godly or how ungodly we are. It has everything to do with um, how we respond to God and our faith in God. And so those are some of the reasons why um, a a reason uh, what some put forth as what this is but some of the problems if you hold that view and others actually put forth the view that what it's talking about here is that it's talking about kings and nobles and so the sons of God would be kings and nobles and they then married the common people if you will the daughters of God but again there's a problem with that because why would such a relationship bring forth these giant creatures which it talks about does happen and again it doesn't answer the idea that the Old Testament word here is for angels And so what we can assume, you guys, is that the sons of God here pretty much means angels or even more correctly, fallen angels. Now, if you've never studied this passage before, just keep with me and you're going to to do some thinking afterwards because this is kind of pretty bizarre what this is talking about here. And if you studied it, then hopefully I can help it get even clearer to you. And once and all for all, you'll understand. But these are fallen angels and we know this because you see the activity uh, that comes forth in verse two taking themselves wives and having sexual relationships with them in verse four all of which would be opposed to God and so we've identified that the sons of God refers to angels and then by their activity we can assume that they are fallen angels so we're on good ground across the board with at least that much now one, if, if one has a problem with the idea of fallen angels having relationships with a, a, a woman and thus having children, where this comes from is it's taken from the verse that Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30 um, because they say that angels couldn't do this. And Jesus said there in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He says that of, are, and are like angels in the heavens. And so the assumption is that angels are sexless there. And that is an assumption. Look what Henry Morris says. He says, This objection presupposes more about angelic abilities than we know. When Jesus said that the angels of God in heaven do not marry, this does not necessarily mean that those who have been cast out of heaven were incapable of doing so. And so what he's really saying there is we're going farther than Scripture when we say that that verse where Jesus says that they'll be like the angels neither marrying or given in marriage... We're taking the scripture too far there because the scripture doesn't say then that, the, um, that it doesn't imply there that the angels are sexless. And again, we want to be very careful with some of the conclusions here. Um, and he and other writers point out, and we know this, don't we, that in the Bible, angels often appear with physical bodies. As we get to uh, Genesis 18, we're going to see that Abraham will actually eat with angels. We think of the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when in Sodom, uh, angels went to warn Lot, they had the appearance of men, and the men of the city wanted them to come out so they could have homosexual relationships with them. We think of Hebrews 13.2 in the New Testament, that it says that some have entertained angels, in other words, shown hospitality to angels and not known they have done so. And then, of course, this appearance of uh, of angels after Jesus' resurrection. And so we see that angels can take on the appearance of man. Henry Morris says angels are always described when they appear as men as the pronoun he is always used in reference to them. They have been given, the, given by God the capacity of materializing themselves in masculine human form and when, uh, when occasion warrants. And even though their bodies are not under the control of the gravitational and electromagnetic forces which limit our bodies in this present life and so it would seem that what we have here is just that and again listen I said it would seem I'm going to show you something that then it looks like you have fallen angels entering into sexual relationships with human beings and thus you have a giant breed and a wickedness that God had to deal with okay and again this obviously wasn't God's will that this would take place but fallen angels, think about it, they don't care about God's will, do they? They are really following who's their leader. It'd be Satan. And very likely, and again, think this through because this is you, you have to think about what's going on. Very likely, to a degree, we have an attempt by Satan here to stop the will of God from being done. Remember, Satan knew back in Genesis 3.15 that one day through the seed of woman, he would be destroyed. Remember that? We talked about that. And so, then when you go to chapter 5 and you look at verse 29, go ahead and peek at that. When Lamech prophesied of Noah, his son, that rest would come through Noah, and that rest there wasn't a physical rest, it was a spiritual rest, it was a pointing to salvation would come in the future, it isn't hard to see then that Satan and his angels could fear that their victory is about ready to slip away. And so, they did what we read of here. There was this incredible wickedness taking place. Henry Morris points out that in the days of Noah, such an awful eruption of abnormality and wickedness burst forth on the earth that it could only be explained by a demonically supernatural cause. And so, again, um, it could be that there was this inner breeding going on. And again, this is weird, isn't it? This is strange. This is the stuff of Hollywood. And yet, um, you know, Hollywood never comes up with anything original. You know, they're just kind of, God always beats them and the true life, always beats them. And if this is the case, fallen angels mixing with mankind, again, we have to be careful because there's some problems with this point of view. Okay? First of all, we really don't know if that could happen. As much as you can't say that Jesus said that they'll be neither marriage nor given in marriage because we'll be like the angels in heaven. We, we can't say, well, that says they're they're sexless. We can't say that, but nor can we say that what this idea is actually going to happen either. And the other thing is it really creates a problem uh, theologically of what does God do then with a, a, a half-breed race, if you will. See, the problem is that fallen angels... They have no chance of being saved. the The angels do not get redeemed like mankind does, but fallen men and fallen women, until uh, that time that Christ appoints, they have a chance to be redeemed, don't they? And so now, if you have a a, a breed of people upon the earth that are half demonic and half human, you also have a real theological problem of how to how does such a person get redeemed? And so again, you want to be careful of going too far with these things. And so then what could be a possible answer? And this is where I kind of lean. Is another possibility then, it is definitely demonic activity is involved because we know these are fallen angels. But really what might be happening then is you have a possession of mankind, uh, to a segment of mankind. And so these fallen angels, and it's really believed there were a group of them, not only possess certain men, and they would then possess certain women. Thus, they would enter into sexual relationships and that come forth, and then they would go and on and possess the children as well. And again, that is probably a safer ground to stand on than the idea that you ended up with a half-breed race, half-demonic and half-human. Um, but that is a possibility. And so, again, whether it's fallen angels that were breeding with mankind our possession of mankind and mankind's offspring, what we can agree upon and be assured of is that wickedness was increasing. And man was corrupted against God. And it says, really, he was totally bent that way. Every thought was towards evil to the point where God had to step in and say, enough is enough. And so we go on, verse 3, the Lord said, my spirit then, will not strive with man forever because he also is flesh nevertheless his days shall be 120 years and so this incredible thing taking place population exploding wickedness exploding God stepped in and basically said I'm going to put an end to it I will not strive as I've strived with man uh, much longer and really he says then that uh, his days will be 120 years and there's a couple of ways of looking that. Some see the 120 years as now God would change the length of man. And there's some credibility to that because after the flood and you do your homework later and you see the number of years man lived, it does get shorter and shorter and it does pretty much eventually fall into that 120 years or less. But it very likely could also be that, that uh, it is also that in 120 years God would bring about The flood that he's talking about. And so he was warning man that, uh, you know, there's a time that I'm going to come and I'm giving you a warning. And again, I thought about this that, you know, there's a lot of criticism with this story and people, the idea that God would wipe out man from the face of the earth like this. But, you know, those that do that never seem to acknowledge that by giving man a period to repent, and we could debate whether that's what the 120 means or not. We know there was time. Noah didn't build this ark overnight. But it shows us that God's grace, even in the face of judgment, is there. Giving man time to repent, time to turn. And, And if you think of Noah building the ark and what it would have took, you realize Noah's ark was the first billboard on the face of the earth. You say, well, how so? Well, because as he started to build that, every day those that were able to see it, and not everybody could see it, you have to understand, if the population is this big, man is scattering through the face of the earth so it's going to be a limited number that are in the area where the ark is actually being built but how that ark must have spoke to mankind see it hadn't rained on the earth up to this point there hadn't been a need for a boat up to this point point. and so here Noah is building a boat to deal with the floodwaters that are going to come be coming from the rain and it was really a, a sign to mankind saying something's coming, something's coming and so that's what Noah did. And I think a 1 Peter 3:20 even says it when it says, "When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark." And so what do we see? We see God, again, the grace of God, the patience of God, as he even though he will bring forth his judgment because he has to deal with sin, he always gives man time to turn, time to repent. Second Peter 3.9 says the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but his patience toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance and you know I was thinking about my older brother in 1974 I lost an older brother from uh, ultimately he died of cancer and it was a blessing if there's a silver lining to it and I think there is in my, this case because um, he came to the Lord And so obviously he didn't pass from this earth without knowing the Lord, and he's with the Lord now. But it was interesting because he was given four months to live and almost to the day, literally, he died in four months. And so it was again, I see it as what we're seeing here today. It was God's grace, God's saying, Listen, I'm giving you a warning. You're more fortunate than so many because I'm going to tell you something that you only have this much longer to live. Make up your mind what you want to do with your life. And he did. And so that's what we see here, don't we? That that God is being patient in the grace of God. Even in this story, this horrible story, as wickedness increasing, we see the grace of God. Well, verse 6, The Lord is very sorry that he had made man on the on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And that doesn't mean that God made a mistake. It means that he was going to have have to change his plans because man had changed. Namely, man had become totally wicked. And it grieved him. In other words, it means it caused him to have pain over the situation. And listen to what Kent Hughes says. Kent Hughes is a, he's a great Bible author, great Bible student. He pastors the church back in Illinois. He says, Though God inter- God's eternal joy and happiness cannot be disturbed, he is not a disinterested observer of the human race scene. One of the marks of personality is feeling. And here in Genesis you read that God's heart was filled with pain. The word expresses the most intense form of human emotion, a mixture of rage and bitter anguish, and so that is what was happening with the Lord. that's how God felt you know he was it was it was he was grieved in his heart um, and so God cared. He loved uh, man deeply, but God's love can never violate that he's also a God that is just, and he can't turn his back on sin. Again, the world doesn't like this. The world wants a God that will let it let them sin and come to Him when they want to come to Him and on the terms they want to come to Him. But you understand that isn't how it's to be. That God is just and He's loving. And He can balance those two absolutely perfectly. And so that's what we see here, that He will not violate that. Not to mention man reaching this level. This is interesting to think about too that really when you see as we will finish in the end of the chapter and then next week we get into seven, really God takes eight people out of, if it's millions, out of millions that were unrighteous and he was going to have to wipe out, there were only eight. And that shows us how close it was to the whole population of mankind being corrupt, that only eight were saved and only eight were worthy to be saved in that, in that sense. And so verse seven, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land for man, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I'm very sorry that I've made them. And again, the idea there is he's grieved. He's not he didn't make a mistake, you know. And while we can we can see God's grace in giving man time to repent. Watch the other side of it, though. Don't miss that God doesn't take lightly sin. And so he you know, he, he's not going to treat it half heartedly is he? And you know, man can take his sin lightly and does take his sin lightly. But the Lord does not. And even looking ahead, even now we are in a time of grace when man can repent, but God isn't joking when He declares that sin has got to be dealt with. That it has to be dealt with in only one way, in the life and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And a time is coming when it will be too late. So again, the balance, isn't it? We don't want to just think that you know, it's just all grace and all that the goodness of God and that he just kinda doesn't look at sin much. Again, you can't do that with God. He's got to deal with both if he's truly God. We go on in verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And don't you love it when the word does that? It does it often when all of a sudden there's just a this horrible story is laid out, this horrible accounts laying out. You could hear God telling the story, but then all it says but Noah, and now what does he say? Found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and understand it wasn't because of what Noah did. It wasn't that he he was doing good, and God said, "Oh Noah, you're such a good man. I want you." That that wasn't the case at all. You know, remember it, it was of Enoch that it said he walked with God, and that meant that Enoch was intimate with God. And here, look at verse nine. It says there are these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blamelessness in sight and here it is Noah walked with God and so it wasn't by Noah's works it wasn't by Noah being good but it was because of Noah's faith he walked with God he believed in God he was intimate with God that God then would take him and his family and use them to repopulate the world Hebrews eleven seven tells us in the list of faith that Noah was a man of faith by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness which is according to faith. And so it goes on, verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And so it's just telling us again what we just saw. And the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And we know that's the case. So often we see floods and a flood can rise and it could do its destruction, but then when it, the water recedes, the land is still there and pretty much everything looks the same other than buildings are destroyed. But in this case, that wasn't so. Not only did it did wipe out mankind, but it changed the face of the earth. Make for yourself, then he says, an ark of gopher or wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it, the length of the ark must be three hundred cubits, its breadth fifty cubits, its height thirty cubits, and you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it, and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks, and behold, I even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh. which is the breath of life from under heaven everything that is on the earth shall perish and so because of man's corruption reaching such an incredible height and such an incredible wickedness and encompassing almost all of mankind God would bring forth this flood wiping out mankind and notice changing like I said verse 13 of the earth but he would save Noah and he would save Noah's family eight people with the ark and you know really the ark if you're A Seattle person, especially like myself growing up in Ballard and being familiar with Boss Tug and barges. You know, that's all the ark was. Now, the ark was an incredible barge, okay? It wasn't like what we think of, but that's really what it was. It was an incredibly designed barge. It wasn't a boat. It wasn't a ship. You know, it was like a floating box. It was designed to carry and not be propelled. It was more about storage and floating stability than speed and navigation. Why? Because God would take care of that. God would guide it in its path and move it along and get it to where it needed to go when the floodwaters receded. And the details show us that God knew what he was doing. Noah was tilled to make it out of gopher wood, obviously a wood that was on the earth at that time. And we don't know anything about gopher wood other than the fact that you could probably assume it was some type of hardwood because that's usually what they build boats out of. It had multiple rooms. Again, think about that. Keeping the animals separate as you don't put all animals together. And keeping man separate from the animals. It had a length, God said, it's going to be this long, this wide, this height. It translates to 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, providing the perfect dimensions for both cargo and endurance for various types of cargo. A cubit is, depending who was king during the time, it was from the tip of the middle finger to the elbow, and usually a man's, and it's usually around 18 inches. And so, again, depending who was in power at that time, that's how it was built. But that's what we're told about it. And it had windows at the top, no doubt for air and light. And again, God had it covered, didn't he? You imagine being in the ark with hundreds of animals You'd want a little air, wouldn't you? You know, and I imagine Noah's family's quarters were at the top, on the top deck, you know, up there. It had a door on the side. It had three levels. I read somebody said just sheep alone, if you do the math, this ark could have held well over a hundred thousand sheep. Of course, it didn't, but that gives you the idea. And it would be a great exercise, and for you that like mathematics, to do some calculating and and take the dimensions of the the ark figure out the floor space times three, start calculating the size of different animals and stuff. And I think you'll be amazed of how many animals this barge, this good barge, don't get me wrong, um, could hold. And notice God said to coat it inside and out with pitch, you know, so that it'd be waterproof. And so verse 18, but I will establish, and he says, so he tells Noah, do this. I'm going to wipe out the earth, Noah, build this ark, And, you know, Noah might be wondering, well, do I get to go? But now he knows, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be made male and female. And of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, Two of very kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. And thus Noah did, according to all, that God had commanded him, and so he did. And so, what was tragic? I think we can only begin to imagine. I don't think our world today is like what we're reading about this morning. I don't think we, it has reached this point yet. But the sinful condition of man in such a short time, but then it turns on one like Enoch, a man who walked with God, Noah. And in Noah, there is really incredible encouragement. There is incredible example. You know, in a given morning like this morning, especially here at Calvary, we want to teach you the Word of God. We want you to know the Word of God because I think when you understand the Word of God, when you see how rich it is, how deep it is, how thorough it is, how complex it is, it, it gives you strength in your walk of God with God. But we also want you to, you know, have something to apply. And I think when we look at the this man Noah, we see an incredible example, don't we? You know, I had dinner with my son and my daughter in law, Aaron, the other night, and we watched a movie and afterwards I posed the question to them and wink, I said, Why is it that mankind we love um, we love stories that have happy endings or we love the hero we we just love that don't you i love to go to movies like that i love to be inspired in that way you know and if hollywood could have it shot at noah they'd probably goof it up but you know noah's like that think about it you know this is an a scene that i don't even i don't think we can imagine how bad it was and yet here's this bright light in the middle a man who was still and like his, like Enoch did was walking with God you know go back to look at verse 8 and verse 9 again And let me just close with this and then we'll take of the Lord's table and show you this you know we see the encouragement we see the example in know when we look at those words again that he found favor he found grace in the eyes of God and you know everyone who gives their life to Christ will find the same grace if you think oh no that's you know I know you get that grace Pastor Scott you know I'd say, no, you get it too. And God doesn't look at me and say, oh, I, get, I got special... Well, He probably does say, yeah, I got special grace for Scott. He needs a whole lot more, you know? So, but He doesn't do that, see? I heard who said that. I'll talk to you later. You know, but God has God grace for all of us. No one deserves it. We deserve the opposite. But grace, you guys, looks beyond our faults. And maybe I need to remind you, we all have faults. If you're here today and you don't think you have faults, you have a problem. Because we all have faults. None are righteous. No, not one, the Scripture says. And how we need to walk in that grace, don't we? To receive it daily. And think about that, you guys. You say, Scott, well, what do I do with this passage? Well, there's something you could do. You could spend the rest of your lifetime learning to walk a walk of grace, to be conscious that God has shown His grace to you. Be conscious that God sees you through that those eyes of grace, and what an impact that has on a life. How that makes you see everything differently, and how you'll behave so much differently. I think it also says to you and I that not only did He find favor, and again, it means He found grace. That's the word there. The first time grace appears in the Bible, um, but we need to realize that we need to be people who extend grace to others as well. And let me balance that too, because so often when we have to use the, the word as the sword that it is, when the word has to be used to point out a fault or correction, you always hear the cry of some people, where's your grace? Where's the grace of God? And that's not what this is talking about. That's not what we're talking about. But we want to make sure that we are graceful to people that our attitude towards people, our willing to forgive people, to look beyond their faults, is always one of grace. Notice too, it says Noah was a righteous man. And it doesn't mean self-righteousness. We know that. That would be based on his own doing. But he was righteous because why? He trusted God. He believed in the Lord. You know, And think about it. Even though he was asked to build an ark, there were no rain clouds. It had never rained upon the earth. What did Noah do? He obeyed. Why? Because of faith. And what an example that is to us to do what God says, even if we may not understand why. And our kids are great examples in this way, aren't they? You know, kids so often, you give them a chore to do, and the first thing they say is, why? You know, once they get a little bit older. When they're little, they'll do it. Then as they get older, they question you, why? You know, well, just go do it. And you don't want to explain to them all the implications and ramifications of why. But they question you. But here's Noah and he speaks to us because we're adults, aren't we? And Noah is told to do something and even though I'm sure he didn't understand everything about it. Nobody had ever built something like this before. And yet he just did it because the one he loved, the one he was intimate with, had said to do it. Notice it says there in verse 9, the record of the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And it doesn't mean when it says blameless, he didn't have any faults, but his character was upright. It was mature. And in Christ, this is what we have. His righteousness becomes ours. And that is how God sees us. It is his power becomes ours. The Spirit's power becomes ours and comes upon us and resides in us. And if we'll remember that each day, how, how incredible that is! How different it is to go through life and to live a certain day thinking that you're full of fault and full of blame, as opposed to realizing Yet, while you may have faults and while you may have things that you've done wrong, that God in Christ sees you as blameless. And you know that changes the way you look at things. And notice what does it say here. It's amazing this man is such an example. Verse 9 again, it was, he says it was blameless, but do you see what it says? In his time. And I've just shown you what the times of Noah were like. There were only eight people that were considered worthy to be taken into the ark. And yet Noah was one that was blameless in his time. In other words, what does he say to you and I? It is possible to live in a world that is filled with sin, that a world that has turned its back on God, in a world that is anti-God, it is still possible to live for God. And that is so encouraging, you guys. Because so often you and I are being beaten down every single day to compromise. Don't live that radical life. Don't take that radical stance. Don't believe that radical belief. You know, Soften it a little bit. Compromise it a little bit. But Noah didn't. Noah did it in his time. And you and I can do the same thing. And then notice he walked with God. The last part of verse 9. And again we already mentioned what that means. And it means he was intimate with God. Him and God were close. They had an intimate relationship. You know, Satan would love for you and I to believe that that can't happen. And oftentimes we experience defeat in that area, but we are told that what in the book of James, if we draw close to God, what does it say? You know the verse, He will draw close to us. And so there's the promise. You say, well, Scott, it's talking that Noah had that intimacy, but we can't, and I just showed you, yes, you can. Because the Bible says, if we draw close to God, He will draw close to us. And so what a great example we have in Noah, don't we? This man of God, and as we go out of here this morning, we can think of him, we could consider his life, again, not above Christ, but we could see that, in a sense, he's a type of Christ, isn't he? You realize the ark was the only means of being saved. It's a picture of salvation. Many pictures here, you guys, that we didn't go into. But again, we see an incredible picture here of God stepping in. And so we want to take a communion now. The worship team, go ahead and come back up. And think about it, you guys, as we think about what we know communion is all about. What an incredible picture here that we see the same thing as what Noah did, that God had grace upon Noah that Noah was able to to go forth and and to be saved so we think of the grace there and we see the grace that God shed to us in Christ dying upon the cross and so we want to take of communion and as we do I want you to remember that I don't know where where's Jesse is he upstairs is he coming down and as we do take a communion you guys just think of that think of the grace of God I think that is something maybe the Lord wants us to understand this morning because even though there were many millions wiped out in the flood God showed grace to Noah and his family and God wants to do the same to you and I this morning and He he has done that in Christ and so take of the bread and the juice hold it till everybody has it and then I'll lead you in a time of communion so let's just worship the Lord in this next song and um And then we'll take up communion.